Well, we're going to be in Luke chapter 3 this morning, uh, but just to set it up, I want to take in a few verses in Matthew 13, so feel free to turn to Luke, uh, keep a finger in there, and then open up Matthew 13. But before doing any of that, I want us to pray and invite God to come and speak to us. So Heavenly Father, I want to pray that you would open our ears to hear you today. We want to hear you today. And Father, I'm just acutely aware that the passages we're going to be looking at are are, are, are tough, tough passages. And I want to pray that you would help me to communicate with grace, uh, help us to receive these hard words with hope. Uh, And through it all, Father, I want to pray that your will would be done, uh, that as a result of this, we would get deeper uh, and more serious uh, in you and experience more of your goodness in our lives. Amen. Well, if you read the Gospels, I think one of the things that's tremendously consistent in the ministry of Jesus is crowds. It seems like wherever Jesus goes, large crowds quickly gather. So over and over and over again in the Gospels, you hear phrases like, and the whole city came out to hear him, and the whole region came out to see him, and large crowds gathered to him. It's like wherever Jesus is, there tends to be a massive crowd. In fact, there are times when the crowds got so incredibly big that Jesus had to literally try and escape from them. On more than one occasion, the crowd actually tried to overpower him and force him to become king. This is a man who drew massive, massive, massive crowds. And in those crowds, on the whole, there was a level of repentance and there was seemingly genuine love for Jesus. But here's where... I think it gets ever so slightly peculiar, because despite the fact that the best part of tens of thousands of people seem to repent and confess love for Jesus, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, there are just 120 men and women hidden away in an upper room. So somehow, tens of thousands of people disappear and only 120 are left. It's pretty peculiar, isn't it? In fact, it's always blown my mind that on Monday, the whole city comes out and sings, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! And by Friday morning, that very same crowd of people are screaming out, crucify him! Crucify him! I mean, what's going on? It's ever so slightly surprising. But it's not surprising to Jesus. First of all, because he's God. But secondly, because he anticipated this. He said it was coming. So, for example, in this passage in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew recounts just one of those occasions when, again, large crowds gathered around Jesus. That They're desperate to hear his teaching. And so he's like, you're sitting comfortably? Okay, let's begin. There was a farmer who went out and just started kind of throwing seed everywhere. Some of the seed got eaten by birds, some got choked by thorns, and some fell on fertile soil and produced a good crop. Amen. You're dismissed. And the disciples kind of come up to him and go, Jesus, this really isn't working. 
I mean, we don't even understand what on earth you're talking about. And if we don't understand it, then the crowd certainly doesn't understand it. And so Jesus comes back and he explains what he's talking about. Here's what he says. We're going to pick it up in verse 18 of Matthew 13. Now listen to the explanation of the parable about the farmer planting seeds. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. Then the evil one comes and snatches away the seeds that was planted in their hearts. So he's saying, there are going to be plenty of men and women who hear the gospel, who hear the word of the kingdom, who hear the good news about the grace and mercy of Jesus, and they don't quite understand it. And instead of persevering and really trying to get to the bottom of it all, although it does kind of resonate with them, for whatever reason, they're just going to end up walking away from it. And that thing that gripped them for a moment just disappears. Jesus continues, verse 20, the seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's Word. So, this is the kind of person who hears the Word of the Kingdom of God. Again, they hear about the grace and mercy of Christ, that they hear all about the cross, they hear about all of those things, and they want it. I mean, they're desperate for it, and they're like, I'm in, I'm, I'm completely in, and they start with a bang, but in a few weeks it gets difficult and they're out. Then there's another kind of person, verse 22, the seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's Word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, so no fruit is produced. I guess what this type of person does is say, yep, I'll follow Jesus, but is very much on my terms. I'll follow him, but here's what it looks like. You, you, you can have this area, and you can have this area, and, and you can have this area, but this, no, 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 this is mine. I, I'm going to run this area my way. And the funny thing is, Jesus just really doesn't play that game, ever. Basically, Jesus says that sooner or later, that the word's going to get crowded out altogether. And then there's one more type here, verse 23. The seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear, truly understand God's Word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, even 100 times as much as had been planted. Now, I don't know about you, but where I'm at right now is I desperately want to be that last kind of person. But this story of Jesus makes me slightly nervous. I mean, what if my roots aren't strong enough? What if I'm merely part of the crowd, but not actually in? And the passage that I want us to camp out in for the rest of this talk, just to warn you, is going to make this idea a whole lot worse. Because in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is going to say some very, very difficult things. 
He's not the least bit seeker sensitive. He's not at all bothered if he offends people. But if you'll stick with it, I want to show you why these incredibly difficult and challenging words actually contain phenomenal good news. Let's pick it up in verse 3 of Luke 3. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. So that's John's job, preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus is going to come along soon afterwards, and here's what Jesus is going to do. Verse 5, the valleys will be filled, the mountains and hills made level, the curves will be straightened, and the rough places made smooth. And then all people will see the salvation sent from God. Let me try and break this down a bit. First thing that's going to happen in Christ, it's going to happen through the cross. It's going to happen in the coming of the Holy Spirit, is that the valleys or the low places are going to be lifted. In other words, the base parts of the human soul, those wicked areas, those dark places through Christ are going to be lifted up. They're going to be brought into the light and healed. Second thing we see here is that the high places are going to be brought low. It's like self-exhortation and pride are going to be absolutely blown away. Now, you need to understand, the whole mindset of John's audience, the whole mindset for the first century Jew is that God loves me because of my heritage. God loves me because of my Jewishness. God loves me because of my obedience to the law. But the message of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is you need to throw yourselves on the free mercy of God because you really cannot be saved by your good works alone. So Jesus is going to come along. He's going to level the mountains and the hills. He's going to bring low the high places. He's also going to straighten out what is crooked. He's going to smooth out, straighten out the curves. It's going to take all of those sinful areas of our hearts, lust, anger, manipulation, lying, all of that stuff. He's going to straighten it out. Then the fourth thing we see here is he's going to make smooth the rough places. Now, I've got to admit, I'm just speculating here, but I wonder whether this is referring to all the stuff in our lives that isn't bad in and of itself, but there is just so much of it that it ends up drowning out God's voice. It's as though we're so busy with it all that we end up not having a whole lot of time for God. You know, I think the reason a lot of us lack depth in Christ isn't because of bad or wicked things, but rather morally neutral things. It's like we're just busy ourselves with stuff. And then we think we're doing all right because we're not doing anything overtly bad, but Jesus is wanting to remove those things. 
He, he, he just wants it out because he wants our heart. He wants our attention. He wants us to know him more. Then the last thing that John says we're going to see with the coming of Jesus is salvation. Now, this was a massive deal for the Jews. The whole of the Old Testament effectively points to the coming Messiah who would bring salvation. Uh, and John is saying here that Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the bringer of this salvation. So you can see why large crowds are going to follow Jesus. I mean, if this is the promise, then I want those things. I want Christ to fill the base things in me. I want the crooked paths made straight. I I don't want to be a liar and a manipulator. I want obstacles removed so I can see salvation. I want those things. And I think probably most of you do too, or else you wouldn't be here today. And so the question then is, how do we get them? How can we be sure that we are not just part of the crowd that disappears the moment problems come along? How can we be sure that we are planted in good soil that lasts? How can we be sure that we have salvation? How do we get this stuff? Well, as we read on, John is going to say how you don't get these things, which by default will then help us to see how you do get them. Here's what he says, kind of like his introduction. Verse 7, when the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, he, he greeted them with these words, you brood of snakes. Now, you need to bear in mind, John is addressing crowds of Jews here. They thought that everyone else in the world was the problem. They were the answer. They were God's chosen people. They were proud of the fact they did everything they could to obey his law. These were spiritual people. So how does John address this very proud, very religious, very moral group of people? You're a bunch of snakes, which they would have interpreted to mean you are sons of the devil. Pretty bold, pretty in your face. And then look what he says next. You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Now think about it. These men and women, very proud, very religious, very moral, have come out to the Jordan to listen to a man who dressed himself in animal skins, who had a diet of eating insects, and called them children of the devil. I mean, there's got to be something supernatural going on here. I mean, it's not a big draw. And so John asks them, who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? He's saying, the only reason you've come out here is because God is stirring something in you. Now remember, these were people who were looking for the promised Messiah. These are people who had always believed that with the coming of the Messiah, there was going to be blessing and there was going to be wrath. And so John the Baptist is saying, which one do you want? Now faced with that choice, blessing or wrath, I think most sane people don't go, oh, I'll have the wrath, please. And so listen to what he says. Verse 8, here's how to ensure you don't get wrath, but instead you get blessing. 
Verse 8, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, uh, we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children out of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Kind of seems like the Jews here felt as if they had God a little bit boxed in. Here's why. God had promised them, and he's going to keep his word, that he's going to use them to change the world, that through them salvation is going to come to the very ends of the earth. And so they knew that God couldn't wipe them all out, because if God wiped them all out, then God's promise would be broken, and God doesn't lie. He cannot break his promises. So what they did was this kind of Judaism, just good enough. They said, hey, I'm a Jew by heritage, so God isn't going to be able to destroy me, and so what I'm going to do is just enough to be accepted by God. So they went to the temple. They would have gone to the synagogue on Saturdays. They would have been externally good. They would have obeyed all the external laws. In order to look clean, in order to look good against the backdrop of a pagan world. But we're going to find out when Christ comes that their hearts, despite all of this, are nowhere near God. And so John the Baptist shows up and he prepares the way saying, your heritage and your morality are inadequate for salvation. Your repentance has been a false repentance. Your love for God is a shallow love, and the axe is at the tree, and he will chop you down and burn you. And if you think he can't do this because of his promise to Abraham, he'll make that stone over there turn into Abraham's children. You don't get to pigeonhole God. See what I mean about not particularly seeker-sensitive? And you might be here for the first time today thinking, what kind of church is this? John here, he's walking up to, to, to very devout, very religious men and women who morally went way beyond anything in the ancient world. And John the Baptist is tearing into them, saying, you think that your heritage, who your parents were, you think that your behavior, what you've morally accomplished is going to be enough to save you. But I'm telling you, God's wrath is coming against such things. He's saying that there is a true repentance and there's a false repentance. And the false repentance is inadequate. So the crowd, listening to all of this, understandably so, is absolutely freaked out. But at the same time, it resonates with them. It resonates because they start going, what do we do then? I mean, they run into the water and say, baptize me, baptize me. And Jews weren't supposed to get baptized like this, but they're in. Get, I want to get baptized. What do we do? I want salvation. Now, here's where the text, I think, gets really quite interesting because here's what John the Baptist is saying. 
John the Baptist just said that your works, your acts of service, your acts of morality, your long lists of things that you've morally done and not done, he's saying those things are not going to be enough to save you. And so they ask him, what should we do then? And then he gives them a list of things to obey. I mean, does that sound slightly strange to anyone? Look, a list of things isn't going to save you. Well, what will? Here's your list. I mean, it seems like John is contradicting himself here. But I think he's actually saying something incredibly important. Here's what it is. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, we're told of the crucial need for, first of all, bearing fruit, and second, self-examination. And what John is about to give us is an objective evidence of genuine repentance. He's not telling us how to gain God's approval. He's showing us what fruit we should expect to see in our lives if we've thrown ourselves on the free mercy of God. If you like, he gives us a framework for self-assessment. He's incredibly practical and really very challenging. He lays into three key areas, money, power, and sex. Let's read what he says. And then I'm going to try and wrap it all up and tell you why really this is very, very good news. Let's pick it up in verse 10. The crowds asked, what should we do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. So the first measure of whether or not we have genuinely repented and know God is revealed right here. How do you view your things? How do you view your stuff? How do you view your money? How do you view your food? You see, we can play the game. We can come along like this on a Sunday. We can learn the vocabulary. We can learn when to raise our hands and when not to. We can say all the right things. We can dress appropriately. We, we think we are in. But if we're selfish, if we are money-grabbing, if we are greedy, then the chances are that we are actually not in relationship with God. We haven't fully experienced his mercy and his grace. We are outside. You know, one of the the clearest evidences of genuine repentance is being generous with our stuff. Because nothing exposes the true nature of our heart more than our attitude towards our money and our possessions. If we've flung ourselves on God for mercy and received not just forgiveness but relationship as sons as we were looking at last Sunday, then it makes no sense whatsoever that we would then be selfish with what we've got. Or to put it another way, if we refuse to trust God by being generous with our money and possessions it really makes no logical sense that we'd be willing to trust him for the infinitely bigger issue of our eternal salvation. You see, I'm not talking about earning salvation here. 
This is about the fruit that proves you've been saved in the first place. Our attitude towards our money and possessions is a big indicator. Let's look at the next one. Verse 12. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptised and asked, Teacher, what should we do? He replied, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? Asked some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Sadly, where there is power, there is often also corruption. Where people have influence, they often abuse their position in order merely to serve themselves. And that's certainly what was happening with these two groups of people who approached John. Back then, tax collectors and soldiers were renowned for taking advantage of their position and supplementing their income by taking from those who were under their authority. Of course, in our culture, there are plenty of other abuses of powers that are far more subtle than this. Asking people to do more than is healthy for their families for the sake of the business, throwing our weight around out of a need for self-esteem, not, not giving room to others out of fear that they will do better than us, C- controlling others through bullying, intimidation, manipulation and fear. Listen, If John condemns the practices recorded here back in the Roman world, surely he also condemns the more subtle forms of abusive position in our culture today. But notice, John doesn't tell the tax collectors and soldiers to quit their jobs. He doesn't encourage separation from the world any more than he encourages selfish pursuit of it. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Notice also that John argues that if they were content, they'd be far less likely to be tempted by the possibility of abusing their position. It's like God has promised us absolutely everything we need, spiritually, materially, emotionally, physically, mentally. So another result, another objective evidence, another fruit of genuine repentance is that we don't use our power, we don't use our influence, we don't use our position to extort and to take. I mean, if we are content, if we are really content in our relationship with God, why do we need to? And then as we read on, John the Baptist also starts attacking Herod. Verse 19, John also publicly criticised Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife, and for many other wrongs he had done. And so Herod responded by putting John in prison, adding this sin to his many others. As the story gets played out, Herod's wife, who was his brother's wife, gets her daughter to do a little belly dance for Herod on his birthday. I mean, how awkward's that? But Herod gets so enthralled, he's like, I'll give you anything you want. What's she want? What's she asked for? John the Baptist's head on a platter. And I'm kind of thinking, 
A sane man wouldn't cut off a man's head just because a half-naked girl asked him to. But Herod cut off John's head. He puts it on a platter and brought it to her. Now here's the thing about sexuality and sexual deviance in particular. It will always take you deeper than you ever fathomed it would go. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about here because pornography in this one place stopped being enough a long time ago and so it carried on to this other place and that stopped being enough. And I'm telling you, it's likely to end very, 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 very dark. I'm not saying you're going to go out and cut off someone's head, but I'm saying it's going to end very, very dark for you. Which incidentally is why the Bible has so much to say concerning sex. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, this is all incredibly heavy. But from Luke's perspective, this is actually really good news. He says in verse 18, John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. You're thinking, this doesn't sound very much like good news to me. God doesn't like this, God doesn't like that. Do this or I'm chopping you down and throwing you in the fire. It all seems very threatening. It seems like God is really angry and not only angry, but pretty much against anything and everything that I consider to be fun. But here's the thing. The more you study the Bible the more you see that the commands of God are ultimately about joy. God is not looking for begrudging submission to rules, but he's after my joy in submitting to him. Like, just try and illustrate what I mean. If you came up to me after the meeting and said, Jonathan, how's your marriage to Helen? And I answered, well... I gave my word, so I'm in. But to be honest with you, I think that woman is just horrible, and she sucks the life out of me. But I made a promise. I made a promise to be faithful, and I'm a man of my word. So for the rest of my long, long, (laughs) long life... I mean, is anyone going, I really want some of that? I mean, please, help us with our marriage. I I want to be more like you. When I was a child, I dreamt of one day having that, a a commitment that was so incredibly strong that it could endure the most horrific circumstances. I'm telling you. That's what people have done with Christianity. That's the package. But in the Scriptures, Jesus is going, no, no. I'm not glorified by your begrudging submission. I'm glorified most by your joy. And so I'm trying to lead you here into more and more and more joy. And so the commands of God about wealth and stuff aren't about God or the church trying to control your wealth or get their hands on your money. It's about your joy. Because God is most glorified and you are most satisfied in your enjoyment of Him. And listen, God is not sexually repressed. 
For the record, it was his idea right back at the beginning. He said, be fruitful and multiply. You kind of know how that happens, right? I mean, God is after your joy. Now, here's the truth. Every single one of us, all of us, are in the story that Jesus told about the farmer scattering seed. You've got a part in that story, whether you like it or not. You can avoid it, but by avoiding it, you still play a part in the story. Rail against it all you want, but you've still got a part in that story. And even if you're like, ah, just forget it. Really, all you've just proved is that you're the first type where the seed just went on the path. So how do we find out what part we are in that story? Whether we're in or out, whether our faith is genuine. Well, I think it's self-examination. How you view your stuff. How you live your life. How you view your job. How you view your neighbor. How you spend your money. All of this has to be placed over your life and you have to look at it because there are very deep very eternal things at stake here. These are warnings. We we need to lay these objective evidences on our lives and go, have I genuinely repented? Or am I merely just playing a game here? Do I just kind of give Jesus lip service or do I really love him? Uh, Am I part of his family or am I simply part of the crowd that will disappear the moment there's trouble? Do do I know and love Jesus, or am I just conforming to a version of Christianity just good enough, just doing enough to fit in and look the part? You desperately need to do a spot of honest self-assessment. And you want to know, one of the most frustrating parts of my job, I can't do it for you. I can't. I can just examine my own life. I can just lay these evidences of genuine faith on my own heart. I can examine and go, is there fruit? Am I bearing fruit? Is there change in me? Can I see growth in love and joy and peace and patience? Are are those valleys coming up and the the hills coming down? Are Are the crooked bits getting straightened? And let's say I examine my life like that and I conclude... I don't live that way. Well, then here's the good news. Now that I realize that, I can throw myself on the free grace and mercy of God and plead with Him for forgiveness and ask Him for help. That's why this is such good news. Where I've failed at those things, I can run to the mercy of Christ. And where I run to the mercy of Christ, there I receive forgiveness. There I receive the Holy Spirit's help. There I get back up and go. So I've got to ask you, do you pass? That's what I'm asking. Do you pass? Are you willing to undergo this painful work of self-examination? Because John's message is, repent. Because even now, the 
axe of God's judgment is poised. And every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. So won't you turn to Jesus? Won't you ask for mercy? Won't you ask for help? Won't you plead for forgiveness? So in a few moments, I want to give you that opportunity. Opportunity to do just that, to respond to him. But before we arrive there, I want to close by just being really clear about what we're talking about and what we're not talking about. Here's where I think it all lands. Are we basing our hope, are we basing our salvation just on doing good works, on our outward performance, on our attending meetings, on our simply being part of the crowd? Or have we thrown ourselves on the free mercy and grace of Christ? And if the answer is, man, I I just don't know, then what I've tried to do today is give you some objective evidences that will help you answer that question. And the good news is that if you're willing to do the painful work of examining your heart, assessing your life, then we'll better see whether or not we do need to throw ourselves on that grace and mercy or whether we have already. And listen, those valleys get filled up slowly and those mountains get whittled down over time and it takes the breadth of our lives for those crooked paths to be straightened out and those rough places to be made smooth. I think that's why we continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, why we continue to throw ourselves on the free grace and mercy of Christ. So I'm not talking about being perfect here but for those who have genuinely repented and come to know Jesus, there is going to be fruit. There will be growth. There is going to be a loosening of the hands on the things of this world. There is going to be evidence of our love for him. So I want to invite you to stand. And I want to give you right now an opportunity for you to respond to this warning so that you can find grace. If it helps you just to block out the distractions, please just just close your eyes. I want to give you time where you're at to do business of God. In all of this, God's not after outward show. He's after your heart. That's why he brought you here today. Just as John asked the crowds, well, why, what brought you here? Why have you come? It's good. God's at work. God's brought you here. Now, if you have allowed stuff to crowd in and start choking your faith, maybe it's a, a misuse of money or sex or power. Maybe it's something else I haven't touched on. I want to call you right now to repent, to turn from those things, say no more, and fling yourself onto the mercy and grace of Christ. Please don't waste 
this opportunity just where you're at just quietly in your mind you speak your response to God <laughs>